Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to the fifth episode of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Before we get into this week's discussion, I want to encourage you to download and read my free ebook called The Foundations of Investing. It's available at alexisasadi.net under the Books tab across the top of the page. I've noticed that a lot of people don't really comprehend the basics when it comes to investing. They understand it in a general sense, like I put my money into this stock and then I hope to make money from it, but they couldn't tell you what a stock is, or what a stock market is, or why they're important to our society. In my opinion, that's the fault of our education systems and their failure to teach this kind of stuff in school, but that's a discussion for another day. And since people lack that ground-level knowledge, their capacity to analyze and assess investment opportunities is limited. They end up taking on too much risk and make poor buying decisions. That's the problem that I try to help solve in The Foundations of Investing. I start the book by exploring what businesses are and how they might be structured. I talk about the various types, like corporations, trusts, and partnerships, and some of the important distinctions between them. From there, I go on to address why businesses raise capital from investors and how investment opportunities are created. For instance, why would one company borrow money while another offers equity? Why would one business sell bonds while another sells preferred stock? Why do some companies pay monthly dividends while another does so each quarter, while still another never even makes dividend payments? And what are things like stocks, bonds, debentures, convertibles, and promissory notes? The reader's knowledge base builds chapter by chapter, each of which is supplemented with multiple choice quizzes. I'm pretty adamant that people read this book, so not only is it free of charge, but it's also free of cost. What I mean by that is that websites will usually give you a free product, but in exchange for your email address or phone number or access to your social media profiles. So you're still paying, but with a different type of currency. But the foundations of investing is something that you can just click and download instantly, without jumping through any hoops. It's about 90 pages long, and will definitely be worth your time. So in the last few weeks of this podcast, we've been going through an investment that's notorious for paying income, called a Real Estate Investment Trust, or REIT. This is a business that acquires and operates mainly revenue-generating properties, and it distributes most of its net earnings back to shareholders or unit holders. We also talked about how e-commerce has changed the REIT landscape by promoting industrial assets like warehouses and storage space. And last week, we examined some of the implications of an aging baby boomer generation and how REITs can benefit from that. Today, we'll talk about another generation called the Millennials and how they can impact certain kinds of REITs. Millennials are people born between the 1980s and the early 2000s. As of 2016, they surpassed the amount of baby boomers living in the US and Canada. Millennials have had a substantially different life experience than baby boomers. To begin with the obvious, they are a lot younger, and to date are all around 20 to 40 years old. Millennials are generally better educated, more liberal, more socially and environmentally conscious, less religious, they get married later, and grew up around digital technology. For example, as a millennial, when I was 15, I listened to music in my iPod, a revolutionary product created by Apple in 2001. But when my dad was 15, Apple was still just a fruit. Millennials are also more politically correct than baby boomers. According to Pew Research in 2015, 
40% of millennials in the U.S. supported laws that would restrict speech considered offensive to minorities. They want a flat corporate culture, a work-life balance, and equality among genders, especially with respect to employment earnings. Millennials are often stereotyped as being bratty, narcissistic, entitled, and easily offended, which is obviously not true, and I frankly don't appreciate you making microaggressions against me while I'm in my safe space. But despite having better technology, more education, greater mobility, and growing up half a century removed from the last world war, millennials are far less wealthy than baby boomers. One reason for that is the Great Recession of 2008, which caused rampant unemployment among young adults. Between 2007 and 2009, about 20% of people aged 16 to 24 could not find work. Those who were employed saw wage declines of about 5%. And even as the economy climbed out of its hole, those millennials' wages only recovered a third of their lost ground. Today, millennials earn a salary that's 20% lower than what baby boomers made at the same age. Further, the financial ROI of a college or university degree has declined. Roughly 40% of millennials aged 25 to 29 now have a bachelor's degree, the highest portion ever. But while millennials with a post-secondary education earn about $17,000 more per year than those without one, they are saddled with record amounts of student loans. In the U.S., the class of 1993 graduated with about $12,000 in loans to repay. In 2012, that number grew to $27,000. In 2016, it was $37,000. As such, millennials enter the workforce with more debt and less ability to pay it off, let alone build wealth for the future. At the same time, asset prices have grown dramatically in the last 50 years. The average price of a house in the US in 1980 was about $47,000. Today, it's four times as much, at around $190,000. Where I live in Vancouver, Canada, the average house price is $1.8 million, which is $1.4 million US dollars. So how does all of this connect to the future of real estate? Well, let's take a look. The combination of earning less money, having greater debt, and entering a more expensive housing market has made it harder for millennials to buy homes. In fact, with rent prices especially high in cities, one in three millennials still live with their parents. The prospect of homeownership is bleak for tens of millions of young adults. As such, owning a home is often less of a priority than it was for baby boomers when they became adults. For many millennials, rent is often considered an expense like any other. It's just a cost of living. They have other goals in mind first, like completing their education, advancing in their careers, which can mean remaining mobile, and paying off debts there's been something of a generational shift in mindset. Many millennials do not graduate high school with immediate plans to get married, buy a home, and start a family, especially since employment opportunities have expanded for women. In 2014, only 27% of millennials were married, compared to 48% of baby boomers when they were the same age. Forbes magazine has a good article about millennials' perspectives on purchasing a property called Millennials Are Driving Up the Single-Family Rental Market, Here's Why. It notes that their desire to rent has been escalated by a few factors. First, they want to be mobile for both work and life adventures, and they don't want to be pinned down by a mortgage and the hassles of maintaining a home. They want to be able to up and leave without worrying about selling or renting out their property when they're gone. 
Second, many saw their parents lose their home during the Great Recession and no longer view real estate as the ultimate safe haven for capital. When 4 million homes were foreclosed on and repossessed in America in just a few years, it changes your perspective on property. Forbes's article also points out that many millennials are drawn to jobs in cities where technology companies have driven up housing prices, thus making homeownership even less feasible. The desire for the largest demographic in the US and Canada to rent, rather than buy, presents an opportunity for real estate investors. They can purchase a house or an apartment, lease it to tenants and profit in multiple ways. First, by paying down the mortgage with the rental earnings and thus building equity. Second, by earning income from the rent payments. And third, by realizing a capital appreciation if the property rises in value. One way to participate in this type of investment is through REITs. These are in fact some of the largest rental landlords in the world. Avalon Bay Communities, for example, is a REIT headquartered in Virginia that owns over 78,000 apartment units across New England, California, Washington, D.C., New York, and Seattle. It earned over $2.1 billion in revenue in 2017. A Canadian REIT called Boardwalk owns over 33,000 residential units across Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Quebec, which equates to over 28 million rentable square feet. Other multifamily REITs include AIMCO, Equity Residential, Mid-America Apartment Communities, Cap REIT, Morgard North American Residential, and Northview Apartment REIT. Residential REITs are traditionally associated with multifamily assets. That is, they own apartment buildings that can be rented to dozens or even hundreds of tenants, instead of individual properties that are leased out one by one. As such, losing a few tenants doesn't usually cause the same kind of damage as it would to less diversified assets. For example, imagine owning an industrial property that serves one tenant, who suddenly goes bankrupt. It would probably throw the asset into financial distress, and would be unsustainable for long. Since they don't usually have that problem, multifamily real estate can more easily create steady, reliable income flows for investors. But while millennials do occupy multifamily properties, they have also promoted another trend. Many of them want to live in a nice house with a backyard, but they just don't want to own it. They'd rather rent. This has helped spur the demand for rental houses and pushed up the rent prices. In fact, according to Harvard University, over 8 million rental houses came online between 2005 and 2015. There are five major single-family REITs in the USA, which collectively own over 140,000 houses, amounting to over $25 billion worth of property. Institutional interest in single-family homes is actually quite new. 99% of houses in America have historically been owned by small investors and occupants. But that has changed in recent years. In 2013, around 30% of all purchases were made by institutional investors. It seems as though that trend will continue. The cost of rent for these assets has risen by about 4% per year, making them especially appealing to income-oriented buyers. Broadly speaking, residential properties are inherently less risky than other real estate. They provide a basic human necessity, shelter. They aren't like offices or warehouses, where their utility can suddenly dissolve. People might not always need to work in skyscraping buildings, but they'll always need a place to live. Perhaps the greatest risk to rental assets is economic strength. When people earn more money, have more savings, and can maintain good credit, it's easier for them to buy homes. That occurs when areas see job creation, 
rising wages, reductions in debt, reasonable regulations, and advancements in education, science, and technology. If more people can buy, then there will be less of a need to rent. Although today's society is better educated than ever, there aren't many signs pointing towards wage increases or deep reductions of debt. Residential REITs can be lucrative investments precisely because their tenants can't afford to buy. But if circumstances were to change, it could threaten their viability. I know I say this every time, but I think it's especially important for this type of REIT. Just because the fundamentals look promising, it does not mean that every residential REIT is a good investment. It's important to research them individually. Moreover, one problem that can arise from opportunity is oversupply. If too many rental properties are built because of bullish investors, it can depress the cost of rent and thus hurt revenues. The laws of supply and demand are important to consider for any investment, including this one. It can be problematic if there are not enough tenants to occupy the existing real estate. You'll recall from last week's episode that this already happened in the healthcare real estate sector, so it's a good idea to consider where geographically REITs are investing. Ideally, they should be doing so where there's plenty of demand for rental properties, but not enough inventory on the market. However, if interest rates continue to rise, it could blunt future construction and thus help us manage this risk. So next Wednesday will be episode number 6 of the Income Investing Podcast. We've also been added to another platform, Google Play, so you can now listen to it from there, as well as from iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please remember to click subscribe so you can get notified whenever the new episodes are released. I've been debating whether to bounce around from one kind of income-producing asset to another. Like, perhaps I could go from REITs this week, to mortgage funds next week, and then bonds the week after. But I think the problem with that method is it'll be harder to give thorough information. You might have more immediate variety, but the content won't be as deep. Also, I want to build a catalog of podcasts that you can easily refer back to. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to keep going with Real Estate Investment Trust for the next few episodes. I think they're also a good way to learn about property investing in general, and they can easily tie into other investments like mortgage products. Next week, I'm going to talk about how you can capitalize on the hospitality industry. Many of the world's hotels, motels, and resorts are owned by REITs. They've become of particular interest because as baby boomers retire, they tend to vacation more. The episode will be published next Wednesday at around 10 o'clock in the morning Vancouver time, which is Pacific time. So thank you as always for having me in your home or your car or wherever you are right now. Please remember to visit my website, alexisasadi.net, and read my free book, The Foundations of Investing, and I'll see you in a week. <laughs>